The theologian Herman Bavinck lived in the latter part of the 19th century and into the early part of the 20th century. Bavinck wrote, among other things, he wrote a very important four-volume systematic theology that is more than 2,400 pages long. I want to begin today with two brief statements that Bavick made at the beginning of volume two of that monumental work. The first statement is as follows. Bavink wrote, God infinitely surpasses our understanding, imagination, and language. One more time. God infinitely surpasses our understanding, imagination, and language. And then the second related statement is on the facing page. Bavink says, the knowledge that God has revealed of himself in nature and scripture far surpasses human imagination and understanding. Again, the knowledge that God has revealed of himself in nature and scripture far surpasses human imagination and understanding. Well, both of those statements that I just read to you have to do with what theologians call the incomprehensibility of God. The fact that God escapes the bounds of our human ability to fully comprehend him. As John Frame puts it, there is a discrepancy between God and our power to comprehend. There is a discrepancy between God and our power to comprehend. And of course, this discrepancy between God and our power to, to comprehend is stated in Scripture itself, isn't it? In places like Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 where God says to us, listen to what he says, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or Romans 11, verses 33 and 34, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? See, there is a discrepancy between God and our power to comprehend. And yet, as Herman Bavinck goes on to say on the very next page of his book, the purpose of God's revelation, according to Scripture, is precisely that human beings may know God and so receive eternal life. And there, of course, Bavinck has John 17 John 17.3 in mind, where Jesus says to the Father that eternal life is that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. So God desires that we know him, doesn't he? 
He's gone to extravagant lengths to ensure that we know him, but yet at the end of the day, God is not fully comprehensible to our finite, ignorant selves. Well, friends, the passage we have before us this morning in 2 Corinthians is a passage that oozes both of the things that we have just talked about. On one hand, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, is a passage given to us that we may know God and know his ways when we suffer. But yet, at the same time, there is a definite element of incomprehensibility or mystery about God and his ways in this passage, if we're honest as we read it. The total effect, at least for me, is that these verses cause me simply to tremble in worship. They cause me to be astonished, to be full of wonder and humility and sobriety over my position as a creature who lives under this almighty, amazing God. Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians 12. A little bit of background here. The situation of the Corinthian church was that it was a mess. One of the many troubling developments in the Corinthian church was the appearance of what Paul calls the super apostles. The super apostles were self-appointed apostles, false apostles, who had come on the Corinthian scene preaching a gospel other than the gospel that Paul had brought to Corinth. And from the evidence that we have in this letter of 2 Corinthians, it seems that these super apostles were claiming that they had received divine knowledge through personal spiritual experiences. Always a very dangerous claim. As 2 Corinthians 12 opens, Paul is taking this claim of the super apostles to task. In verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, and I hope you have your Bible open, in verses 1 through 4 of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes his own lofty and stunning spiritual experience. An experience he had of being caught up, he says, to the third heaven. Of being taken up into paradise. Where, he says, he heard things that cannot be told. Things which man may not utter. The idea here is that Paul is saying... If you want to boast about your spiritual experiences, super apostles, let me tell you about my experience of being taken up into paradise and hearing inexpressible words. But, he says, let's not talk about that. <laughs> In fact, God said, I'm not permitted to talk about that. Rather... Let me tell you about my weaknesses, because that's a whole lot more important. That's the basic background to our passage, which begins at verse 7. 
Paul says in verse 7 that something happened to him to keep him from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. And the revelations that Paul has in mind here are revelations that were given to him in that experience he had of being caught up into the third heaven, taken to paradise, where he heard inexpressible things. Paul knows that the super apostles prided themselves in their spiritual experiences. The super apostles shouted their spiritual experiences from the rooftops in, in the hope of gaining accolades and of gaining followers. But Paul says here, listen to what he says. He's saying, hey, those, those spiritual, amazing, staggering experiences that I had, that experience could have easily plunged me into pride, into a sense of spiritual superiority. God knew that, and God desired to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So what did God do? Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Notice this. To keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. The word thorn here is translated from the original Greek scallops. A scallops is a sharp, pointy thing. A stake, a fish hook, a thorn. Now watch this. Very soberly and very carefully, friends. Listen very carefully. God gave Paul this pointy, sharp thorn in the flesh. God, in his wisdom, gave Paul this thing that vexed Paul. This painful something was given and purposed of God to curb any tendency towards spiritual arrogance in Paul. Well, hang on a minute, Dunbar. Wait a second. You're not reading the, the rest of verse 7. Doesn't Paul say here, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan? To harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You just said, Pastor, that God gave Paul the thorn in the flesh. But here it says clearly that the thorn was a messenger of Satan to harass Paul. So which is it? Who is working this thorn? God or Satan? And my answer is yes. Both God and Satan are working the thorn. We need to hear this. Let's look at this carefully. First of all, Paul says specifically in this verse, notice, twice he says that the thorn was given to keep him from becoming conceited. The question is, 
which supernatural being, God or Satan, would desire that Paul not become conceited? God would desire that Paul not become conceited. Satan would love it if Paul became conceited, like Satan is conceited. So it's clear then that where this purpose of keeping Paul from becoming conceited is concerned, God is behind it. The popping of the pride and arrogance balloon is on God's heart, which means that God sent this purposeful thorn There is no question about that. Where human pride and human conceit and arrogance are concerned, God is violently opposed. Proverbs 16.5 says that everyone who, listen to this, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. In Isaiah 13.11, God talks there about putting an end to the pomp of the arrogant. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So we know that God was behind the thorn because the thorn's purpose was to prevent conceit in Paul and Satan would never send a thorn with that purpose in mind. But yet... At the same time, verse 7 is clear that the thorn was also simultaneously a messenger of Satan to harass Paul. Same thorn, but now a different purpose for that same thorn from a different supernatural being named Satan. God sent the thorn to prevent conceit in Paul. Satan used the same thorn to harass Paul, to torment Paul. Same thorn, but two different beings with two different purposes, two opposed purposes. One purpose of God is blessed and noble and excellent. The other purpose of Satan is vile and ugly and cruel. Satan's purpose, notice carefully, his purpose with the thorn was to harass Paul. Now the word translated harass here is very colorful. You know what it actually means? It means to pummel, to knock around about the face. There is a humiliating aspect that is contained here in this word. Satan's purpose with the thorn was to humiliate Paul, to knock Paul around, to smash Paul in the teeth, probably in the hope that Paul would then distrust his God and turn from his God. Friends, Scripture teaches that suffering in the life of the believer can have this two-stranded, two-track aspect about it. For example, in Joseph's life, his brothers really did have evil purposes. They really did mean to harm Joseph. They schemed and they plotted to kill Joseph. 
to get rid of Joseph. They hated him. But God. God sovereignly meant all of those same sufferings of Joseph for good. God was at work with his divine and steady and almighty and all-knowing hand with good purposes in mind, even in the midst of the evil sufferings that Joseph's brothers inflicted. Or take Job. Satan really did want to harm Job and inflict suffering and pain on Job to finish Job off. But God overruled Satan. Amen? God meant it all for good. God worked good purposes through the suffering of Job that were simply beyond the reach of Satan. Satan is God's lackey on a leash. God worked purposes in Job's case that were beyond the reach of Satan. Those who arrested Jesus Christ and humiliated Jesus and drove nails into Jesus, they really hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus and the memory of Jesus liquidated once and for all. But what did God do through all of it? God worked his greatest redemptive power ever through the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. God overruled Satan, and he overruled men in that moment. God prevailed. Satan wants you to be in pain. Satan wants your suffering to be exacerbated, to be deepened. He wants it to fester more. But God's purposes and plans in that same suffering overrule the plans and purposes of Satan. God's purposes are for your good and for your benefit as his child and for your spiritual health. God will prevail. He always does. Well, some of us may wonder, what exactly was Paul's thorn? Can we identify precisely what the thorn was in Paul's life? And the answer is simply no. We can't. Because scripture doesn't tell us. There have been many guesses made as to what the thorn was. Some have tried to argue that the thorn was some sort of psychological disturbance in Paul. Others have tried to argue that the thorn was opposition to Paul that came from various false teachers. Still others have claimed that Paul's thorn was a physical issue of some sort, maybe malaria or a speech impediment or an eye problem of some kind or a neurological disorder. The fact is that scripture is silent on the matter of what the thorn was And I think that God purposely kept the identity of the thorn from us. I think he left it so vague like this because he wants all of us and each of us to identify with this section of scripture and the teaching here, no matter what thorn might be afflicting us. If the thorn was specified here, we might not identify with it if we hadn't encountered that particular thorn. 
So God keeps it vague. So each of us can identify when we have thorns of various kinds. What we do know is that this thorn, whatever it was in Paul's life, was vexing, troublesome, painful to Paul. It really hurt. How do we know that? We know especially because of verse 8. Paul says in verse 8 that on three separate occasions, he pleaded with the Lord. Notice that. Pleaded with the Lord that the thorn should leave him. Three times, Paul fervently requested to the risen Jesus Christ that Jesus remove the thorn. The thorn was vexing and painful and untoward. It was something grievous. Now, doesn't this verse describe exactly what most of us do at the moment when affliction or suffering suddenly invades our lives? Most of us will bang on the door of heaven and say, Lord, take this away. How can there be anything of value in this suffering? Take it away. I want to be free of this affliction. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, the interesting thing here, I think, is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times. Jesus asked the Father about removing the cup that he was to drink. But what happened? The Father did not remove the cup. Jesus then went to the cross where he drank the cup to the dregs. Paul prayed three times for the removal of the thorn. But verse 9, Paul's request was denied. God did not remove the thorn. Rather, Jesus gave Paul something better. Jesus said to Paul, listen to what he said, My grace, my grace, the grace that comes from me, that emanates from me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm not going to take the thorn away, Paul, but know that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Why did Jesus not remove the thorn as Paul had asked? Because Jesus knew that Paul, like the rest of us, was mistaken about what was best for him. Oh, it's quiet in here. (laughs) Let me say that again. Jesus knew that Paul, like the rest of us, was mistaken about what was best for him. Yes? I don't hear a lot of yeses and amens. 
Friends, when God says no to us, it is always with our best interests and welfare in mind. And we are often clueless as to what will tend to our best interests and welfare because we are only looking at the trees while God is looking at the forest. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What Paul gets is the grace and the power of the risen Jesus in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his thorn experience. Jesus denies Paul the removal of the thorn, but supplies Paul with sustaining grace and power in the midst of of the weakness. And friends, we have to here keep firmly in mind what we learned in verse 7. Namely, that God had sent this thorn for God's good purposes. The presence of the thorn was God's method. And now in verse 9, the grace and the power to cope with the thorn is a furtherance of God's method. It's not that Jesus says in verse 9, oh, oh, yeah, the, the, that thorn, hmm, hmm, yeah. Well, it would have been better if it could have been avoided but somehow, but somehow it happened. So, so here's some grace for the journey. No, it's not that. The thorn was sent in the first place by God for a specific purpose. And now, says Jesus, my grace and power are yours to enable you to fulfill your calling, listen, to fulfill your calling even with this limp in your life that I have purposed and that I have sent. Are you hearing the word this morning? Now let's zero in here on that phrase. Blessed Jesus, my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus says to the thorn-inflicted Paul, Jesus says to us when we are suffering, some of you are right now, my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, look at those two words, made perfect, there. They are translated from a single Greek word that means to bring to completion or to reach consummation. So the verse is saying that the power of the risen Jesus is brought to completion or it reaches a consummation in weakness. See how upside down the gospel is? In the midst of weakness. In the sphere of weakness. Now let's make sure we get this very carefully here. Where does the power of the risen Jesus reach avalanche proportions? In the sphere of weakness. The best thing that Paul could do with that thorn sticking in his flesh was to confess and acknowledge and own his weakness. Are you hearing me today? The best thing for him was to disown his self-sufficiency, and say to Jesus from his heart, I am so weak. Why? 
because that's where the power, the potent power of the risen Jesus Christ would flood in. You want the power of Jesus? Then see and acknowledge and own your weakness. I want to encourage you, Christian, and I hope you hear me carefully. I want to encourage you to not run away from your weakness. In fact, I want to encourage you, Christian, going further, to pray for a deeper sense of your weakness. I want to encourage you to fear the delusion of personal strength. To use the language of Paul Tripp, fear the delusion of personal independent strength. Tripp says this, quote, The delusional assessment of independent strength locks you out of the place where true strength is found. Did you hear that? He says, listen to this, The hopelessness of weakness is the only door to the hope of real strength. (laughs) I need to read that again. How upside down is the gospel? We didn't realize how upside down it was until we came to this passage. Again, Tripp says, the hopelessness of weakness is the only door to the hope of real strength. Yes, Jesus says to you this morning in his word, my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's go further. Let's mention two other major benefits of being weak of acknowledging and owning your weakness. First of all, most importantly, when you own your weakness, when you live in your weak skin, you are thereby driven to God. When you own and embrace your weakness and throw up the white flag before God and confess the end of your self-sufficiency, you are ascending into a place of dependence on God, aren't you? Which is exactly where God wants you to be all the time. It's a good thing. When you can look in the mirror and say, all I see in front of me is a cracked, broken container that's leaked out all the water. Well, then you have no choice but to run to the fountain to God. It's right where he wants you to be. Secondly, another great benefit of owning your weakness, and very much related to the first, your prayer life changes when you really own your weakness. Anybody testify to that? Your prayer life changes when you really own your weakness. Spurgeon once said this. He said, the utterly weak cry out unto God as nobody else does. He or she is too weak to play at praying. He groans, he sighs, he weeps. In his abject weakness, he prevails in prayer as Jacob did. Yes. Rich and fervent prayer that brings great glory to God comes from the weak, not so much from the strong and the complacent. 
So again, let's be people who pray for a deeper sense of our weakness, and let's be people who run away from the delusion of personal independent strength. Now set your eyes on verse 9 again. Paul has just said, He's just said, I pleaded three times for the thorns removal, but Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then notice what happens next. Let me ask you a question. Does Paul now say something like, Jesus told me his power was made perfect in weakness, and I listened to that. But then after... I pleaded with him a fourth and a fifth time for the thorns removal. Does Paul say that? No. He doesn't say that. Notice this carefully. There is no fourth time pleading for the thorns removal. Notice that carefully. Paul limited out at three times. In fact, after Jesus says what he says to Paul in verse 9, not only does Paul not plead a fourth time for the thorns removal, Paul seems to be radically transformed in his thinking because of the word of Jesus that he has just heard. Paul now says, listen to what he says, it's radical transformation suddenly. He says, therefore I will what? I will boast all the more what? Gladly of my what? Weaknesses. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see this? Do you see the sudden transformation here based on the word of Jesus to Paul? Paul had complained of his weakness in verse 8. Paul had begged God to remove his weakness in verse 8. Paul had despised his weakness in verse 8. And and, and he wanted the weakness to disappear forever, to get out of his life. But now, at the end of verse 9, after hearing Jesus Christ, Paul wants to boast about his weakness. Why? Because Jesus set Paul straight on weakness. Jesus showed Paul that weakness was the sphere in which the avalanche of the power of Jesus would come. Jesus showed Paul that this weakness was what was protecting Paul from Paul. Did you know that your weakness protects you from you? This weakness was curbing the tendency in Paul to become conceited. Jesus showed Paul that this weakness was what would drive Paul further to God and change Paul's prayer life for the better. And so now Paul embraces the benefits of weakness. Paul now wants to boast in his weakness. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How upside down is the gospel? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, friends, just consider the one we've come to worship today. The reason we're sitting here in this sanctuary, Christ himself in utter weakness on the cross the life ebbing away from him, and the greatest power of God is found in that moment. 
The gospel math, we need to understand, is power in weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong because of the power of the risen Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul Tripp once again. He's bang on here. And this is from his new book of daily devotionals called New Morning Mercies. This is a long quote, but I think it's well worth our time. Tripp says this. God chooses for you to be weak, to protect you from you, and to cause you to value the strength that only he can give. In this way, the weaknesses that he sends your way, listen, are no impediments to the good life. They are not in the way of his loving plan. They are not signs of his lack of care. They are not indicators of the failure of his promises. They do not expose gaps in the theology that we hold dear. They are not indications that the Bible contradicts itself when it says that God will meet all your needs. No, these weaknesses, says Tripp, are tools. They are tools of his zealous and amazing grace. They protect you from the arrogance of self-reliance that tempts us all. They keep you from thinking that you're capable of what you're not. They remind you that you are needy and were created to be dependent on one greater than you. They cause you to do what all of us in some way resists doing, humbly run to God for the help that only he can give. So your weaknesses are not the big danger that you should fear. What you should really fear are your delusions of strength. Yes. Protect me, Lord, from my own proneness to see myself as independently strong. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may, what? May rest upon me. Now note that word rest. This is a very interesting thing. In the original Greek, the word means to raise a tent over. To raise a tent over. The word has to do with taking up residence in a tent like when God took residence with his people in a tent in the wilderness when his glory filled the tabernacle, or when Jesus came and tabernacle pitched his tent with us. God pitched his tent and pitches his tent with his people. Paul is saying in verse 9 that when he acknowledges, when he owns, when he boasts in his weaknesses, the effect will be that the power of the risen Christ will Tent with him. Yes? Jesus brings his power and pitches his tent with the weak. That's our Lord. If you're suffering, if you're full of tears, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're lonely, if you're smarting from some relational fracture in your life, if you're being persecuted, if you are ill, if you are depressed. In other words, if you're weak and you get on your face and you simply cry out to Jesus Christ, it is his pleasure to pitch his tent with the weak, to give you grace and power 
and enablement to cope and to endure. Verse 10, finally. This is such a rich passage. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is one place where I wish the English Standard Version would have translated the Greek verb a little more accurately, a little, a little stronger, perhaps. The ESV has Paul here being content with weaknesses, insults, etc. But the sense of the verb is actually a little stronger than that. The verb literally has to do with delighting in, taking pleasure in. So the sense in verse 10 is, I take pleasure in weaknesses. I delight in weaknesses. And again, note the transformation that Paul has experienced. Back in verse 8, he talked about a time when he pleaded with God for the thorn to be removed. But then in verse 9, we saw the evidence of the transformation when Paul listened to the word of Jesus and then said, I now boast gladly of my weaknesses. Now here in verse 10, Paul says, I delight in my weaknesses. Why does Paul say this? How can Paul say this? Because, he says at the end of verse 10, here's the reason, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's why Paul delights in his weakness. Paul's weakness was an occasion, an opportunity to bask in the resurrection power of Jesus, to see that power at work. And so Paul had learned to delight in the midst of his weakness as well. What a passage this is that we have journeyed through today. As I said off the top, it's a passage, isn't it, that beckons us on one hand to know God, to know his ways when it comes to our suffering. But on the other hand, it is a passage, if we're honest, that has some mystery about it. The effect is that it humbles us. It shows us that God's thoughts are certainly not our thoughts when it comes to the purposes of suffering and the value of suffering. His ways with us in the area of suffering transcend our finite understanding, don't they? The call here, friends, is simply to trust him, to worship him, to depend on him as we come to grips with our weakness. This week, pray for an increased sense of your weakness. Resist the delusion of independent strength, knowing that the power of Jesus is made perfect in your weakness and that when you are weak, he is strong in your life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, with the tidal wave of messages from our culture that we are assailed with every day that are so contrary and opposite to your word. We need to come back to your word day by day, week by week in this setting, just to hear again how upside down your message is for human flourishing. Lord God, help us to be flourishers this week as we take this word that we have traveled through and apply it in our lives. 
I pray that somebody here, even later today, would go home and simply cry out to you in their weakness and that you would come mercifully and sweetly and pitch your tent with them. Father, thank you for your goodness toward us, your faithfulness and your love and your consolation. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask those serving communion to come and join us at the table. Testing one, two.